Have you ever experienced a child throwing a, a, a temper tantrum? If you have a kid and you are in public, you know that you can't get out of that place fast enough. If you don't have a kid and you see this happening, you, you wonder to yourself how this sweet little child that just waved at you passing in the aisles all of a sudden turned into the Tasmanian devil and is tearing everything up in the store. Temper tantrums seem to come out of nowhere. A, a kid asks you for something, you give it to them, and in the split second between their asking and you giving, they decide that not only do they no longer want it, but it is the deepest offense that you could possibly do to try to give it to them in the first place. Temper tantrums are these Temporary moments of insanity where rage takes the wheel and logic just goes out the window. This morning, as we conclude this Jonah series, that is what we encounter. A prophetic temper tantrum. A, a temporary moment of insanity filled with rage, empty of logic, that has been building since chapter 1. And now we finally see the depths of Jonah's heart in this final chapter and like we've been seeing throughout all of Jonah, in these depths, we also come face to face with the depths of our own hearts. From the very beginning of this series, we, all the different preachers have said that we are all Jonah in one way or another. But this time, we actually get at what's beneath the running of Jonah, the disobedience that Jonah does, the reluctant obedience he gives in chapter 3, the idols that feed on his heart, the idols that feed on our hearts and kill us slowly. These idols that show their faces when something doesn't go like we expected, like, like we wanted, like we were hoping for. And instead of bringing it to God and processing it with him, we, letting his sovereign will make us more like Jesus, we throw a temper tantrum. We are overwhelmed with anger or bitterness or, or frustration or sadness. And it courses through our bodies, fills the spaces of our hearts and our minds. And, and that's how we know that God has touched the nerve. But in order to heal us, God needs to kill the idol that's feeding on our souls, and he has to give us what our souls really need, God himself. In this final chapter of Jonah, God doesn't just bring us face to face with our idols. In his mercy, he takes us by the hand, brings us out of the book of Jonah, and through the gospels where we come face to face with Jesus. This is why we've entitled this series, One Story, Jesus and Jonah, because like the rest of the Bible, the story of Jonah points to and is centered on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His heart for sinners like Jonah and the Ninevites, his heart for sinners like you and me. But before we get to Jesus, we have to experience the final chapter of Jonah, where God exposes Jonah's idols and exposes our own idols. But before we read the text, let me catch you up to where we're in the story just so we know what's been happening the whole time. In Jonah 1, we've encountered this prophet named Jonah who receives a word from God. You remember this? He, to get up and go and preach to an enemy, a terrorist nation. Instead, he gets up and runs in the opposite direction, buys a one-way ticket to the other end of the world. Instead of, of moving on to the next available prophet, God decides to pursue his rebel prophet and stops Jonah's getaway vehicle with a hurricane of God-like proportions. In the process, he actually introduces himself to the very kind of people Jonah is trying to avoid. And these people then begin a journey towards the only true God. They, they, they seem to walk away from their idols, but Jonah is still trying to get away. So he convinces these people, these sailors, to throw him overboard in the middle of this hurricane. And right before he dies, Jonah is swallowed up by this big fish, a, a big fish who ironically obeys God better than this runaway prophet. And in the fish for three days and three nights, Jonah prays and seems to repent of his errors. 
He has a, a line in there where he, he realizes that those who cling to idols are actually giving up on the grace of God. And by the time he says amen, the fish vomits him back up and he makes his way to Nineveh, now in obedience to God. It's almost like he takes a few steps into the city of Nineveh before he gives his very short sermon, if you look at the text. A, a, a sermonette, if you will. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown and then God does a miracle. The violent Ninevites who should have skinned Jonah alive instead fall on their faces and repent before God from the king to the cattle and God does not bring about his destructive justice. Just as quickly as they repented, God relented from his wrath. And then Jonah threw a party in celebration. Or did he? Now we can read the text. We're in Jonah 4, 1 through 11. For those of you who want a Bible, don't have one, there's one in the cart in the back. Um, we're also going to put the text up on the screen. If you're joining us online, I want to encourage you to read along with us. And like we normally do, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word in Jonah 4, 1 through 11. People of God, hear the word of God from Jonah 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a, a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is God's word. You may be seated. Man, this is why I love the book of Jonah. This is why I love to preach this book. Did you see that coming? Most of us remember the story of Jonah, and we, we remember this, this prophet who disobeyed God, was swallowed up by a fish, eventually spit up by that fish, preached to a bunch of people, and, and were saved. But the story of Jonah doesn't end there. It actually ends in this most like M. Night Shyamalan kind of way here at the end of the book, this huge twist. Here's what the story of Jonah here at the end leaves us with. It, it leaves us with this cliffhanger. But there's a truth that goes throughout this entire chapter that, that forms the main point of the sermon that I'm preaching this morning, this truth that echoes over and over again in this final chapter, and it's this, that the true God exposes our idols so that we might truly love. The true God exposes our idols so that we might truly love. 
And if we don't see this underneath the two episodes that form chapter 4, then we're going to miss what God has been building up to in this entire book. The ironic twist at the end will actually leave us confused rather than convicted, and we're going to leave Jonah for the children's books rather than encounter it as an instrument of God's gospel-saving work in our lives. The true God exposes our idols so that we might truly love, love him, love others, truly love. And so I'm going to take this foundational statement that's throughout this chapter, I think, and interrogate it with three questions for us this morning. That that by his spirit, we might not miss this gospel truth that's embedded in the book of Jonah. Here are the three questions I'm giving you. Who is the true God? How does he expose our idols? And how do we truly love? These are the three points as you're tracking, as you're writing notes. Who is the true God? How does he expose our idols? And how do we truly love? So let me not belabor the point and start with our first question and step into this first episode in verses 1 through 4. You'll notice that the story actually turns on a dime here at the beginning of verse 1 with the word but. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. One translation says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Greek scholars say that Jonah was furious. There is is steam coming out of his ears, and you can almost see his face about to explode. Jonah is raging, and in his rage, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said? When I was still at home, this is what I told you. That is what I was trying to forestall, to keep from happening by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate. I knew that you are slow to anger and abounding in love, God. A God who relents from sending calamity. You can almost feel the spit coming out of his mouth as he tries to spit venom to God in this prayer. This God that saved him from death just two chapters ago. Have you ever been this angry? Firing words like bullets, assaulting anyone that gets in your way. So angry that that your words fill the fight with all the bombs you've been building out of relational scorekeeping. You always, you never, you're just like. Like that dinosaur in Jurassic Park, our anger seems to flare up at any moment and spit burning venom at whoever's in our way. It's this kind of anger that Jonah has chosen, has allowed to, to flood his heart and fill his prayer in this moment. And it is in this prayer that we finally get to the bottom of what's been happening this entire book. Jonah lets us in in the conversation he was having with God in chapter 1. And the the writer, God, as he's been telling the story, has conveniently left us for the end, for this twist. Isn't this what I said when I was still at home? Didn't I tell you? This is exactly what I was trying to stop you from doing it. I knew it. Like only a poet can, Thomas John Carlyle imagines this moment in his poem called Tantrum. And he writes this. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you, and don't you try to forgive me either. Slashing with angry prayer, Jonah levels this accusation against God. Look at the second half of the verse. I've said it a couple times now. I knew that you were like this. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from sending calamity, stopping from sending destruction. What is Jonah accusing God of? Being gracious, compassionate, patient, loving, being a God who actually holds back his wrath. And why in the world does this make Jonah so angry? 
It's because of the people who benefited from God being true to who he is. The Ninevites. The enemies of God's people. The people Jonah thought were enemies of God. And now they've been spared destruction? This is exactly what Jonah thought would happen. And all of a sudden, the book of Jonah becomes very, very clear to us. The reason for all of this, for everything that has happened, is that Jonah's hatred for his enemies has clouded his understanding of God's love. So he ran, as if he could run from God in the first place. There's one author who writes, describes it like this. He says, Jonah's desire to see his enemies destroyed gave him the nonsensical idea that he could sail out of God's vision. He didn't randomly wake up one day and decide the scriptures taught that all boats departing Joppa float magically out of the Lord's presence. He woke up one day, was given a command to preach to people he hated, and then chose to believe nonsense because it accommodated his hatred. Jonah is wrestling with who God has revealed himself to be. He is wrestling with who God has revealed himself to be, with God's integrity to be who he says he is in every circumstance, even when it has to do with the enemies of Israel. Jonah actually is just quoting God's words back to him. You see, the description he gives of God here is is not an uncommon one. The first time it actually shows up in Scripture is back in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where God himself describes like, himself like this. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This description shows up multiple times in Scripture and almost becomes this like favorite memory verse of God's people. But Jonah takes this memory verse and he, he throws it in God's face. But he does something to it before he launches the grenade. He leaves the last part out. Did you notice the next part of Exodus 34, 7? God does not leave the guilty unpunished. If you go back to Jonah 4, he doesn't say that part. And you see that this is the problem that he has with God. Like like, um, us problem children, I'm including myself in that, who have a selective hearing problem, Jonah seems to have a selective reading problem. He distorts God into someone who just loves everybody and and lacks justice in order to rationalize his anger. Instead of seeing God for who he is, that he is both merciful and just, Jonah twists scripture and levels it at God. This is the central question of the book of Jonah. Who is the true God? The answer is that he, he is both merciful and just. Romans 9 tells us that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us in places like Deuteronomy 32 and Daniel 4 and Psalm 111 that his ways are just. Isaiah 55 tells us that his ways are higher than our ways. But what has happened is that God's mercy together with God's justice has become a problem for Jonah, a problem he couldn't stand rather than a beauty he should be marveling at. Like a fastball fast ball down the middle of the plate, Jonah saw it coming. And he was doing everything he could to make sure it didn't happen. He couldn't. <laughs> Jonah was trying to keep God from embarrassing himself. For, to keep God from embarrassing his people. Jonah couldn't stomach the mercy of God being thrown like pearls before pigs. Offered freely to whoever would turn and repent. 
It was as vomit-inducing as his prayer in chapter 2 was, even if they were vomit-inducing for different reasons. Jonah has clearly forgotten what happened in the belly of the fish. When he was shown mercy, when he didn't get the punishment that he deserved, Jonah has this this worship-inducing, repentance-generating, sweet and sustaining experience of God in that moment. But when that mercy was shown to people that he hated, when that mercy induced worship and generated repentance in his enemies, that sweet and sustaining experience became a nauseating and debilitating gut punch. Our hatred, like Jonah's hatred, also has this distorting effect in our hearts. Track with me, because you might not be thinking, oh, well, I hate X, Y, Z. You might just say things like, I hate Taco Bell, and you can have your opinion. When we talk about hatred, people are so quick to be like, I, 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 don't, I love everybody. But our hatred has this distorting effect on our hearts. It, it, it redefines mercy as some kind of mistake. So let me ask you, who comes to mind when I say words like enemy? Again, you might not be using words like this. You might be too polite to use words like this. But who comes to mind when you think of the word other? Is it those people who look like this or dress like that? Is it that group of people from this or that nation? Maybe it's this or that political party. Libs or the conservatives, BLM, Antifa, the government itself. Maybe, maybe it's the neighbor down the street who just keeps blaring their music at 3 a.m. Maybe it's a coworker who somehow just keeps taking credit for all your work. Maybe it's a family member who just seems to stir up trouble every family gathering. There are all kinds of ways we might define the word enemy. Again, even if we are too polite to use it. The problem is that as Christians, we too easily forget that the word enemy once defined us in relation to God. We too easily forget the grace and mercy it took to transform us from enemies into friends. From rebels into kingdom citizens, from death to life. Have we been so consumed by what is easily described as our hatred for others that it doesn't even cross our minds that God is pursuing them like he pursued us? What would happen if those that we considered to be our enemies turned from their sin like we turned from our sin and repented before God? Would we be upset that God did not smite them? Will we be angry with God for being himself, for being merciful and just? Jonah is. Jonah has accused God of being God and in his accusation has revealed the depths of his heart. Look at verse 3. Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's anger turns into despair, but he would rather die than live in a world with a God who shows mercy to his enemies, to people that Jonah has decided don't deserve that mercy. And so God patiently probes Jonah's heart, swollen with anger, beginning to deflate into despair with a question, is it right for you to be angry? The true God who is gracious and compassionate, who has been slow to anger, abounding in love to the Ninevites and now to Jonah. The true God who relented from sending calamity on Nineveh, saved Jonah from the calamity of death, does not give up on Jonah that easily. Because underneath this text, we encounter the true God 
who exposes our idols so that we might truly love. The true God who is merciful and just, who didn't give up on Nineveh, who now refuses to give up on Jonah and asks a question in order to expose his idols. Which brings me to the second question of our sermon this morning. You see, the same God who refuses to give up on Jonah refuses to give up on us, and he refuses to let our idols eat us alive. And so he exposes them. But the question is, how does he do that? Well, I want us to see that the story of Jonah here actually turns at verse 5. Remember Jonah's sermon that I mentioned earlier? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. They they repent, and then Jonah reacts in verses 1 through 4. But at verse 5, we get almost like a flashback. I want you to go back to the the reaction of the Ninevites and watch Jonah here in verse 5 as he races out of the city. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah preaches and then books it out of the city. He finds himself the best seat in the house, pops some popcorn, and waits for the fireworks to start. But while he's waiting to see God's hand before him with the Ninevites, he fails to see God's hand behind him in a plant that's starting to grow. Verse 6, the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Man, this is going to be good, Jonah thinks. Out of the corner of his eye, he notices this plant that starts to creep up. And man, it's covering up the sun. Praise, PTL, smiling emoji, hashtag blessed. The day can't get any better. Well, at least until the show starts. This fire and brimstone, I can't wait to see what God is going to do. But at dawn the next day, verse 7, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. What is happening? When is this show going to start? Like, God, either like you're getting caught up in something or you're late. I, I, now I'm starting to boil. The text even tells us that Jonah wanted to die. It was getting so bad. It would be better for me to die than to live. I had a few moments like that myself when I lived in Miami, so I know what this heat is. To be honest, death would be better right now, Jonah thinks. Maybe I'll get some air conditioning wherever I go next. Why is it so hot? God, what is your problem? But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. The question of verse 4 echoes again in verse 9, but this time, God is using an object lesson to probe Jonah's anger-swollen heart, and he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And now we see what God has been doing. In this moment, we see the wisdom and the patience of God. God exposes Jonah's self-righteous idolatry, not with a lecture, but with an encounter. Only a personal encounter with God will remove the scales from Jonah's eyes so that he can see God, others, and even himself with the kind of clarity that only God can provide. And in this encounter, Jonah gets this this tiny taste of the fire and brimstone he hoped would fall on Nineveh, except it's on him now. Instead, the scorching heat of the sun and the east wind burn his head so that his conscience, which has had these fourth-degree burns from the idolatry in his heart so that his conscience might be healed. God has been at work since the beginning of this book to draw this rebellious prophet to himself, and here and now he poses a question to Jonah that could only end in Jonah incriminating himself, however he answers it. But Jonah doesn't even see it. 
He reacts so quickly, and most of the time we don't really see it either. And it's because, like Jonah, we are so blinded by our own self-righteousness. The American social psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes in the intro to his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. He writes this in his intro, that an obsession with righteousness, leading inevitably to self-righteousness, is the normal human condition. This is non-Christian writing this. We are so obsessed with being right, with being in the right, with being on the right side, that inevitably we distort righteousness into self-righteousness and curve inward away from others. The South African theologian Augustine describes sin like this, this Latin phrase that I promised Ava Roller I wouldn't try to pronounce up here. That, means to be, that sin means to be turned in or curved in on oneself. Sin is like the scoliosis of the soul contorting us in on ourselves, unable to look outside of ourselves. We are in, we're incapable. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not incapable of selfless acts, thanks to God's common grace that courses throughout the world, but we are incapable of living like God designed us to live, of following God's ways, of living in relationship with and worshiping the true God and, and in true and unhindered relationship with others, sin has tainted everything. And no matter how many times we try to straighten ourselves out, somehow, someway, apart from the grace of God, our soul will always manage to curve back in. In this moment, Jonah can't see past himself. It is right for me to be angry, God. In fact, I'm so angry, I'm so consumed with rage that I would prefer death to living in your world. And yet God has refused to let Jonah coddle his idols. God knows that what Jonah most needs is to find satisfaction in God himself. That that, that Jonah's over-the-top love for his plant, over-the-top love for his country has overshadowed his love for God. And he is willing, God is willing to take this plant from Jonah, this, this comfort and this blessing that he has given Jonah, that Jonah might see that unless he finds a satisfaction in God alone, he will never be truly satisfied hurts. It hurts when God exposes idols because when he does that, when he takes away what we have tried to enthrone in our hearts on the place that only fits one and whose rightful throne is God's, he doesn't just leave a gaping hole. He leaves a gaping wound, a wound that only God can heal, a wound that we have tried to clean with the hydrogen peroxide of power, that that we have tried to treat with with the uh, antibiotic of money, that we've tried to band-aid over with drugs, sex, alcohol, a wound we have tried to treat with the first aid that sin itself has tried to provide. What God knows and what we often are too slow to realize is that sin offers first aid laced with poison. That every idol, like finding lead paint in your house, will leak into your soul, slowly but surely killing you. So God goes to work on Jonah's heart like he goes to work on our hearts, and he exposes Jonah's idolatry. Verse 10, the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. Jonah, you're not a gardener, but you love this plant, even though you had nothing to do with its growing. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And you are over the moon about its existence and in the pit of despair about its disintegration. And if this is how you are about the plant, What what do you think I should do, Jonah? Should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, filled with 120,000 people, 120,000 people that, that I made, who cannot even tell their right hand from their left hand, 
filled with many animals that I also made? Somehow Jonah's love for his country, a reasonable and virtuous love, has evolved into an idol, and he can't even see how much more important the Ninevites are than a plant. Tim Keller, in his book on Jonah, explains it like this. He says, if love for your country leads you to exploit people or or root for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost, then you love your country more than God, and that's idolatry by any definition. The extreme anger that we've experienced in this episode is what I like to call an indicator light. In the, in the heart of Jonah, God has exposed his idol and an indicator light has been turned on. And this is how God exposes our idols. It's how God exposed Jonah's idols. By exposing these disordered loves, he shows us where we have prioritized the wrong things in the wrong order. You see, basic definition, anything that we love more than God is an idol. Anything that gives us meaning, that makes us feel safe, satisfies us more than or even in addition to God is an idol. And they will cause our emotions to flare up whenever they are disturbed. The indicator lights of our emotions will flash when God exposes them. And God likes to expose idols because he loves us. And he knows that's what needs to happen in order for us to be human, created after his image to be restored. So I'll pause here and ask you the question, what indicator lights are flashing in your life? How is God exposing your idols? What has come to mind during this sermon? What rose up in you when I touched on certain political labels or groups? What's made you explode in anger before? Or or maybe what's filled you with despair and sadness? Emotions, like I said, they're not right or wrong. They're, they're these indicator lights, like the, like the check engine light of our souls. When they come, out, come on, it means that we need to bring our hearts to God and process everything in prayer, examine our hearts to submit our hearts to Christ, including our emotional life, because they do not tell the truth always. And by God's grace, the Spirit of God uses our emotions to root out our idols. It's not always pretty. It often hurts. But like I told my daughter when I removed her first splinter, a little hurt now To avoid a lot of hurt later, the pain of exposure is much better than the pain of death. God loved Jonah too much, and he loves each of us too much to let our idols live. So the true God exposes the darkness of our idols to the light of his truth and mercy and kills them so that we might truly love. God knows the depths of sin and idolatry in our hearts, in Jonah's heart, and so he's patient. You notice in this whole story, he doesn't get exasperated with Jonah. He continues to pursue him. He he sends a storm, a fish, a plant, a worm, a scorching wind, all of it, to pursue this rebel prophet with his mercy. He has compassion on Nineveh, compassion on Jonah. These Ninevites lost in their sin. The text says they don't know their right hand from their left. They're lost in a, a, a spiritual fog and a darkness. Yes, they are guilty of their sin. God's not excusing them of the guilt of their sin, but they have no way of escape, and they can't even begin to look for the exit door. And here at the end, we see that Jonah is just as blind as they were. They repented and they found mercy, and that the same option is laid before Jonah. The book of Jonah ends here at chapter 4 with this like cliffhanger. But I would argue that Jonah actually let God heal him of his idols, that Jonah actually repented. The reason I argue that 
is why in the world do we have this book that has a lot of details that only Jonah would know because only Jonah is present? And, and who tells a story like this? Jonah doesn't look very good in this story. I'll tell you who. Someone that has experienced the mercy of God come to repentance and wants others like him stuck in their, his way of thinking and his way of idolizing to be freed from sin and captivated by the true God who exposes idols so that we might truly love. Which brings us to the final question of our sermon this morning. How do we do that? How do we truly love? Well, the book of Jonah ends with this question where essentially God asked Jonah, hey, shouldn't I have compassion on these people? These animals even. They mean the world to me. Jonah, your, your pain over this plant is like nothing when compared to mine when I imagine their destruction. Almost like God has tears in his eyes, he's asking this final question, and it, it, and it almost leaps off the page and gets through Jonah and lands on our own hearts. Breaking down our hatred, God asks us, shouldn't I love people like them? People like you used to be? Shouldn't, shouldn't you love people like I love people? The true God and all of his love, mercy, and justice exposes the idols of our hearts so that the love that he shows becomes the love that we show. So again, how do we truly love? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in a parable that, that kind of echoes Jonah's memory problems. And this is kind of where we're closing before we step into communion. And it's Matthew 18. And Jesus tells the story like this. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, I want you to remember that, that's a lot of money, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, the same word, compassion, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Compare that with the previous debt. This is pennies to millions. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant, verse 29, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Same exact thing the guy said to the first master. But this time, he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Verse 32, the master calls the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. In this parable, Jesus explains to us that life in his kingdom is marked by having a good memory. By remembering the mercy you were shown and by therefore showing mercy to others. The difference in the story is that even when you struggle with that, even in your unforgiveness, you don't get thrown in jail anymore. Jesus was already thrown in jail for you. Jesus already took the torture for you. That is the gospel message. So how do we truly love? We truly love by imitating the mercy we ourselves have first received. 1 John 4.19 tells us we love because he first loved us. When we forget what that love took, we allow our idols to distort and disorder our loves. The question underneath the final question of Jonah is, will we let the mercy of God change our hearts toward others and reshape the way we view others? 
In other, in other words, will we see through God's eyes, the eyes of our creator, a creator whose power is matched by his compassion? The true God exposes our idols so that we might truly love because he truly loved us. He draws us in not to condemn us, but to completely change us to change our perspective, to see through his eyes and let his compassion overwhelm our hatred, to flood our hard hearts with his love. Which is why I'm going to read this next verse, John 3, 16, because it explains how Exodus 34 is true. How God can be both merciful and just. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The reason God can be most merciful and just is because Jesus took the wrath of God for us. And now God is merciful with us. The story of Jonah never explains how God can be both merciful and just, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't answer the question. He has answered the question in Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus took the full wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Tim Keller draws out the difference between Jonah and Jesus beautifully when he explains that. That Jonah went outside the city to see, to witness the condemnation of sinners. Jesus went out of the city and was crucified outside of the city to accomplish the salvation of sinners. You and I are Jonah. There's a Jonah that hides in each of our hearts that whispers a subtle but dangerous anti-gospel of, of prejudice, of exclusion, of, of mercy for only a few that deserve it. But the message of the gospel shouts loudly that the wide open arms of Jesus, the wide open arms of Jesus on the cross invite anyone who believes, who looks on him for salvation, who surrender their prejudice, their sin, their rebellion, and humility before him. This morning, that gospel message leaps off the page of Jonah and asks you if you are a Christian to refuse to limit the grace and mercy of God with any kind of prejudice to relinquish any exclusive claim to the gospel, to remember again what it took to save us. This morning, we come to the table of communion to remember just that. You came in this morning, you should have received one of these cups, these sealed cups. We'll wait until we get to each element to open them, and I'll let you know when we can take each together. But as I close this morning and we take communion, I want us to meditate on that verse from Exodus 34. The theology that Jonah cut short in his conversation with God that tells us that, that God is this compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and, and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That God does not leave the guilty unpunished. This text tells us that, that the Lord stood before Moses and proclaimed his name, and this is what he said. He's just. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, and that is what we celebrate and remember in communion. That God can be both merciful and just and that he has demonstrated this in Jesus. Who took on our punishment, suffered the consequences of our sin for our sake because he loved us. The elements of communion, the, the, the bread and, and the cup, they symbolize his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. That God might forgive our rebellion. And this morning as we celebrate communion together, this is what shapes us as we retell the story of the gospel to each other. A gospel that reminds us what it took to save us from our sins. As we approach this rhythm of worship, we are reminded again of that, that sin, of, of our great Savior. And so we're going to enter into a time of confession. And we confess our sins before we eat and drink, not because we have to get saved again, but because this is a table of repentance. A table that shows us how deep our idols go and how far God was willing to go to save us. A table that is set for all 
who have expressed their belief and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so if you have not done that yet, my encouragement to you is to come to the Jesus of the table first before taking these elements. There's nothing magical in these elements. They do not save you. Christians at this table are called to remember, but if you're not a Christian, you are called to believe, to confess your sin, to repent, to accept the forgiveness of your sins in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for you. And so if you've not come to Jesus and believed in his good news of salvation, that his death counts for your sin this morning, I plead with you to do that, to come to Jesus first. But if you're a Christian at this table, I plead with you to remember the gospel that saved you, the gospel that keeps you, and the gospel that's going to bring you all the way home. So as we come this table in remembrance of that gospel and repentance, we come examining our lives and confessing our disobedience, confident of his forgiveness. And so I want to take a moment now for us to confess our sins silently before the Lord before we take communion. Merciful Savior, this morning we confess our sin before you. We repent of our rebellion. We turn from sin and towards you, not because we have enough willpower, but because we trust in your finished work on the cross for us. And so as we eat this bread, would you help us to feel and know the brokenness of your body at the cross? And in hope, would you help us to long for the day when you will restore our broken bodies at the final resurrection? We thank you this morning for saving us. Amen. Well, let's open the bread and hold it together. All the crinkling of the cups. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Holy Savior, we are humbled before you as we approach your cup. We thank you for your innocent blood that was spilled for our guilty hearts. We struggle to comprehend the cost you paid for our lives, but, but to be honest, that just fuels our gratitude all the more. Thank you for saving us. Your blood covers all of our sin, and we do not take it lightly that your blood was spilled for us. Like the old hymn says, what can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this morning, we trust in nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's open the cup. The Apostle Paul continues. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Compassionate Savior, this morning we ask that you would draw us closer to you. Would you help us to see your heart for us and for others? Help us to see all the ways in which we are like Jonah. Would you expose our hearts before you? 
And by your spirit, would you heal us from the devastation that our idolatry has caused? Continue to make us into gospel people, prayerfully dependent on you, courageously stepping into obedience by your spirit. We pray for our neighbors this morning, even as we are reminded of the gospel and communion. Would you bring our neighbors to Jesus? Would you give us the wisdom and courage to participate in your work in the lives of our neighbors? Would you prompt us to pray? Would you open up our mouths, our homes, our hearts? Use us to bring people to you like you used others to bring us to you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our compassionate, our gracious Savior. Amen.